Did you ever wonder how some of the greatest people today become who they are? Most everyone has experienced that turning point in their life. It's these moments that forever changed who they were into whom they've become. Today on The Moment with Chris Epting, you'll hear from these people and hopefully be inspired to find your own life-changing moment. Now, here is your host, Chris Epting. Thank you for joining me today. You know, I'm sitting here thinking about a moment that I went through. I think it was the winter of 1978. It might have been early 79, but I think it was 78. I was a senior at high, in high school at John F. Kennedy High School, Somers, New York, up in Westchester County. And some friends and I were going to see a band called the David Johansson Group. We were big New York Dolls fans. We had been, and of course, Johansson's first album got a lot of attention, and we wanted to go see this incredible new band he had put together and there was this unbelievable blizzard that night and we didn't know if the show was going to happen we called uh, in yorktown heights it was a club called the gemini two rock nightclub and then we called there like seven or eight times and the guy's like no 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 because the band's coming like we got a call and they're you know they're they're making the drive up from the city so we we go out and battle like two or three feet of snow um get to the club and there's not a lot of people there for obvious reasons, but the band is there. We can see them kind of lurking in the shadows back by a pinball machine. And then it was great because we were able to go right against the stage and out comes David Johansson and his band. And we were all blown away that night, not just by the ferocity of Johansson, but the band itself was like, it was like a New York City street gang. It was like something out of West Side Story. These guys all wearing black, um, very cool, very sleek, and really a tough band um, that obviously was what Johansson needed at that moment. For a lot of us growing up in the tri-state area at that time, and actually all over the country, and then ultimately, you know, this band went to Europe and all over the world, that band meant a lot. And I uh, tracked down recently uh, one of the main members of that band, the guitar player, Thomas Trask. And I was so happy that he was open to having this conversation because, you know, certain groups stick with you your whole life. You never get over that first musical experience. And with the recent news lately of um, the late, great Sylvain Sylvain uh, passing away, you know, you begin to realize how the window is closing on that music scene. There, there's one New York doll left, David Johansson. All the original Heartbreakers are gone. All the original Ramones. So, Thomas Trask, I want to thank you up front, man, so much for joining me today here on The Moment. Chris, thank you for asking me so much. This is awesome. I mean, going back, Thomas, I, you know, let's let's kind of start at the beginning for you. You were, you know, you were that guy on stage that would sort of glare at the corner of your eye and <laughs> had this really mean look, a really tough New York City look. When, when do you start playing? Before we get to the Johansson group, mm-hmm. um, you know, you seem very serious up there. When, when, how long have you been playing at that point in 78 yeah. or so uh, by the well, time we first started seeing you? Yeah, I started out like when I was around 12 years old playing drums. Mm -hmm. And um, I actually had like a band like uh, in junior high school, like uh, where I played drums. And um, a couple of years went by and I started getting into this idea that I wanted to write songs. And I couldn't write on drums, obviously. So I switched to guitar and I, I... I had like a little crummy acoustic guitar. And I think my, the first guitar I went to go to buy, I had like $75 in like this local music shop. And it was a Gibson lap steel guitar <laughs> <laughs> I purchased. And I and I tried to like learn how to play all of Jimmy Page's guitar solos on slide. Wow. <laughs> it actually turned out to be a really good thing later because I became like a pretty comfortable and accomplished slide player, which not wow. a lot of the people I knew did. And um, then, like, 
around that same period of time, I was uh, hung out with a bunch of friends of mine in high school who were like, we were like music freaks, you know? This is on Staten Island, right? Yeah, this is in Staten Island. And B.B. King was playing at um, the local community college there. And we to live close by, so we knew how to sneak in the back way and shit. So <laughs> we snuck in to go see B.B. And um, somehow we wound up down this hallway and to his dressing room. And he was like, come on in. And he like took us in the dressing room. And he, and I told him I wanted to play, I played drums. I wanted to play guitar. He's like, let me see your hands. And I showed him, he's going, you got guitar players hands. And I'm sure he just said that, but like, that was the, oh the moment, like do it, you know? And then I just started playing and Johnny, the other guitar player, Johnny Rayo was like, I mean, when I was just starting to play guitar, he was already like amazing guitar player. Mm-hmm. You know, like I thought of him somewhere in between like Jeff Beck and Richie Blackmore, you know, he was wow. ridiculous. And he was like 15. And, um, you know, I just started playing and there were like plenty of bands on Staten Island. Like, you know, we played at like high school dances. and everything. Well, you know, to, to, for a second, I don't think people realize what kind of scene Staten Island had. At that point already, Earl Slick had come out of there, right? David Johansson, obviously. Well, my brother, my brother Buzz, when he was 15, was in a band with Earl Slick on Staten Island. Slick was a guitar player. He was a couple of years older. And um, yeah, it was just like we all hung out in a train, this train station in Staten Island called Oakwood Train Station. And it was like all musicians, Chasm Sultan from Todd. Um, yeah, just like ridiculous. It's Tommy Price, I think, was from out there as well, right? He was like, yeah, he's, we all went to high school together. Yeah, crazy. So so Staten Island's got its own kind of thing going on. Obviously, Earl Slick goes on and play with Bowie, Chasm, sort of in the mid-70s. I think he played with Cherry Vanilla, which you guys were in, in that kind of scene as well, I think, right? I think, didn't your brother Buzz play with her? Yeah, that's actually how we got the David thing going, because um, my brother and Frankie DeRocco were playing with uh, Cherry, and her management company, which were like, at that point, it was like main man, Tony Zanetta. Right. And uh, they told us, like, we heard this buzz that, like, uh, Joe Hansen was offered, like, this record deal, a big record deal, but they wanted another band. They didn't want the band he had at the moment, which might have been, like, the last version of The Dolls. I think that's right. So people know the backstory. Cherry Vanilla had been a publicist for David Bowie at Made Man. She decides to put a band together, which is kind of weird on its own. (laughs) And, and, um, and, and she recruits you guys, and, and you know, some of you guys, anyhow, is her band. Chasm Sultan, I think, was her keyboard player. And and Johansson at that point, yeah, you know, like you say, he um he had been touring with I think Tony Machine was on the drums. Uh it was kind of a like a B version of the dolls, right? And yeah. and that wasn't cutting it for the record company. So how do you guys, you and your gang out there in Staten Island, you, Johnny, the great drummer Frankie LaRocca, how does it happen that so- you and Johansson come into play? Yeah, so we were we grew up in Staten Island, and like we were just about. I was actually under eighteen, and I used to hang out at Max's and a couple of other clubs in the city. I used to sneak in, and because we dressed cool or something, they used to let us in, even though we were <laughs> underage. They never checked ID, and uh, we used to see the, go see the dolls all the time. So we, you know, we thought that they were like you know amazing, and. I remember going to see the dolls at the Mercer Arts Center and oh, like, wow. on, on, yeah, like on New Year's Eve and John Lennon and Yoko were there too, you know, it was like, 
crazy. And um, so we really liked that band. And when we heard that, you know, he needed another band, um, the four of us got together and we, we got a, like, I think it was like a, uh, a cream magazine or something. Right. And it told a story. It was an article about like, you know, the dolls recent tour of Japan. And you know what? I think that was it in rock scene, maybe. Could have been one of those magazines. Yeah, Roxine always did a nice job. They were always on Johansson's back covering the Bob Gruen photographing, of course, every move he made. And that, that show in Japan, I think they opened for Jeff Beck over there, if I'm not mistaken. Probably. Yeah, Lisa Robinson was like, a, you know, she right. was, she came, came on the road with us a lot, actually. But um, yeah, so we got this magazine and it had a list of the, the songs that they did in their set. So we started rehearsing those songs on our own. And um, and we started going to um, some of the Dolls shows at the end uh, at Max's. And when David would walk off the stage, a few times we approached him and said, "Hey, we got this great band for you." you know? And he was like, uh, "Yeah, sure, kid. You know, uh, give me a number. I'll give you a call." And he never did, because <laughs> we were thinking like, "I don't know what other lead singer to get. I mean, Mick Jagger. We can't get him. So let's try David." <laughs> So um, we kept doing that. We went to a bunch of shows and I guess one night, you know, we hit him after like they did a show that he wasn't happy with. So he goes, yeah, give me a number again. And he called, he called a number and like a week later we picked him up at the Staten Island Ferry and took him like to my mom's garage. <laughs> and, and we went into the, the song. He was like, you know, this song, uh, personality crisis, I think it's an E. And we're like, yeah, I, I've heard it a few times and we would break into it. And we had gone over it many times on our own. He'd be like looking around like, what the hell is going on? He was like really sort of blown This is away. at your mom's, in your mom's garage. In my mom's garage. Yeah. Incredible. Yeah. My mom was telling me the other day how like uh, David and all of us used to go in and raid her refrigerator during those times. <laughs> So he's so he's liking what you guys are doing. Like he's impressed by the fact that you've yeah. you've got his background down here, right? Yeah, he was like, yeah, he he seemed really like, um, whoa, this is really great. Let's do it again and again. And then um, you know he got together with Steve Paul, who um, who owned ran Blue Sky Records. Yeah, Johnny Winter, Rick Derringer. Well, also, I think Steve Paul also ran that club, The Scene, in New York. Yeah, The Scene. Yeah, that was like. I heard many stories about the scene from Steve when we worked together, but um, yeah, and Muddy Waters too. Mm -hmm. um, so um, Steve put us in a rehearsal studio in, um, actually it was on like Mercer Street and we started rehearsing there and we literally rehearsed like every day, like it was a job, like for a year before we did any gigs. And um, at that when point, did, like, when does the record happen in the middle of all that, Tom? Yeah, afterwards, because what we were supposed to be doing in that period of time is writing material for the first record together with David. And so at that point, David's like, you know, I'd like to have a friend of mine come down and check out the band so he could give me his feedback. And it turns out it's Joe Perry. <laughs> Yeah. And like, we were like these cocky kids, like, you know, like we thought the New York Dolls were great, but we thought like Aerosmith were like this New York Dolls ripoff sort of group at the time. And we were like, not impressed. We're like, oh yeah. Hey Joe. But then like, <laughs> we got to be really good friends. And um, Joe was um, 
set out to to Joe and Jack Douglas were going to produce the first record. That's what. Um, wow. Yeah, and we went into actually went into the uh, the record plant in New York and started to record like some stuff with Jack and Joe, and really loved work. You know, Jack's ideas and stuff, and you know then that this whole thing happened where um, actually Aerosmith were in New York recording. Um, their, Rocks probably. Well, because I know Joe kept coming to um, the record plant and telling us about this new song they have called Walk This Way. Oh, okay, so they were doing toys. Yeah, and um, at that point, like um, David's wife, Sorinda, was very good friends with Joe's wife, Alyssa, at the time. Mm-hmm. And she started hanging out at their studio, and eventually, I don't know how it all happened, but she left David for Steven Tyler. Right. And it was like a major thing and it upset, you know, all of that, that whole thing that was going on. And (sighs) Joe and Jack could not produce the record anymore. And it was like, after we started to record a bit. So we sort of didn't know what to do at that point, but David asked his friend, Richard Robinson to, um, to his uh, husband, right? Yeah. To step in. And we were like, has he done much producing before? But, um, you know, it was David's choice, so we did it, and obviously, uh, it was a good thing because, like, people still talk about really loving the sound of that record. Today. What did he, as a producer? I mean, he was well known. He was an interesting guy. He was a magician. I mean, he had a lot of things going on. But as a producer, do you remember how he functioned? I mean, did he take control, or did he just basically let you guys do what you wanted to do? What was his role in the studio like? Yeah, I think it was a combination, you know, it was like letting us, giving us like, you know, some leeway. And um, he was behind the board quite a bit with with David, you know, making choices. But that first record had like so many people on it. Um, We had like um, Nona Hendrix was on it. Right. I think Perry plays on something as well, right? Joe plays on it too, for sure. Yeah. Well, it's good you, good you were able to keep that component, even though the the drama flared up. It's good that he could still have a, some part on the record. Yeah, yeah. Although, like, I don't know how it happened in the mix. I think it was on Cool Metro. His yeah. guitar stuff that he did got sort of buried, which, <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure how that happened. But, um, yeah. And, um, he had Sarah Dash was on there. And, like, you mentioned Nona Hendrix. Yeah, and, uh, yeah. Um, we had Stan Bronstein, uh sax player who played with John Lennon. Um, yeah, lots of different people. Can't even remember. So, um, yeah, so so you finished the record, and obviously everyone must have been pretty happy with it. I mean, it's a, you know, for a lot of people, I think, it reestablished David Johansson. I mean, people weren't sure what he was going to do. I mean, coming out of the dolls, that's a tough mm-hmm. act to follow, right? Yet you guys managed to pull together this record, this very raw, very soulful um very uh i don't know i mean there was so much going on on that record i mean it's just a great range of things and it was uh i think in large part because the band was able to come through what you guys did um you know really made the difference on that record david david must have been really happy with all you guys on the record right totally yeah funky but she got a lot of airplay in new york Mm -hmm. Time. Well, it became, and that became sort of the the battle cry of the summer. I mean, there were funky but chic buttons and T-shirts, and it was really sort of the anthem of the streets in New York, at least, yeah. um, when that came out. And there, there were still radio stations like WNEW that were there to support 
And um, we're going to take a break in a minute, Thomas, but you guys, for, for as great as the record was, it really was about the live experience, right? I mean, there was a live, you guys did a little residency at the bottom line for like a week or so, which, which sold out lines around the block. I mean, a really big deal. And then a live record, like a radio live thing was cut from that, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, apparently it was. I, I Someone told me it was that the live thing was actually recorded in Cleveland and then someone else corrected me recently. So yeah, I think it was recorded there. Yeah. And it was, remember there was a, you guys, well, I think, and we'll get to it when we come out of the break, but to me, the beauty of the band, it wasn't just the facts. So you have the record you've got to play on stage, but then you would flesh things out with some great cover songs, whether it was build me a buttercup or yeah. you would find a way to take like an old chestnut, some great old nugget from yeah. years gone by and just recreate, you know, reinvent it in a way that made it feel perfect for Johansson. Yeah. Yeah, we did a quick break, yeah. Tom. Let's okay. let's hold that thought. Um, I'm yeah. percepting my guest today is Thomas Trask, taking us back through his experience to begin with uh, with the David Johansson Group. This is the moment. We'll be back in just a minute. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit facebook.com forward slash voice America. Chris Epting will be releasing the third edition of his best-selling baseball travel Bible, Roadside Baseball, in June 2019. Academy Award-nominated director Ken Burns said about Roadside Baseball, What a wonderful book. All the stations of the cross of our national pastime are here, big and small, telling and frivolous. I can imagine this book in the glove compartment of every true fan's car. A handy reference to this beloved game, no matter where in the country you are. The new edition features hundreds of new places to discover, more rare photos, stories, and trivia. It's everything you need to plan the baseball road trip of your dreams. Roadside Baseball, coming this June. Available for pre-order right now on Amazon.com. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. You are listening to The Moment with Chris Epting. If you have a question or comment about our show, please send an email to Chris at chrisepting.com. That's chris at chrisepting.com. Now, back to The Moment. Our special guest today is guitar player Thomas Trask, who uh, we first got to know as a member of the David Johansson Group back in the late 1970s. We're going to talk about a lot of other things Thomas went on to do after that. But Thomas, getting back for a minute, so so you all, the David Johansson Group, you've cut the first record. Um, you mentioned, you know, um, earlier your brother Buzz, Buzz Verno. Yeah. Uh, what was it like, you know, having your brother in the band, and what was your, what was your guys' relationship like uh, growing up? Yeah, I mean, we we were always together. We got along really well. Um, but it's really crazy that I, I changed my last name because I had this idea that that I didn't wasn't comfortable with the idea of having brothers in the band. I don't know why. Like thinking about it now, it seems crazy. But like, um, I thought it, you know there was something meaningful about that at the moment. So you but, changed it when you guys were just hooking up with Johansson. Yeah. Yeah. 
How'd you get Trask? Where did that come from? I get Trask. Okay, so when I was growing up, my, one of my idols was James Dean. Okay. And in um, East of Eden, his name was Cal Trask. That's right. Yeah. Wow. So that's an homage to James Dean. Yeah. Well, I mean, you certainly had that that attitude on stage. <laughs> I mean, you definitely had that uh, very kind of threatening, brooding, very intense, you know, vibe. So that's interesting that uh, that it carried through like that. I think it's what made the band so much fun to watch. Is that again, we felt like Johansson brought his gang with him, you know, and yeah. uh, and it was always. As I mentioned before the break, it wasn't just about playing that first album, but you guys would also go off on these tangents and kind of reinvent popular songs, which became a fun part of the show. You might stick something in the middle of personality crisis during the break there. You might drop, you know, it's a heartache or something like that. I remember we did do that. You know, and then then go back to the verse at the end, and it was always it was a, always a lot of fun. You know, no two shows were ever quite the same. But getting to that, once the record comes out, you guys hit the road and you hit it hard, right? I mean, all of a sudden, uh, you guys haven't been on the road before. You and your brothers, I'm imagining, right? This is a first for all of you to hit the road. Totally, and then and then being asked to um, open up for uh, Tom Petty for a national yeah. tour was like the first tour we did besides for like, like we played a lot locally before we actually hooked onto a, a tour and then just going on the road with those guys was like mind blowing. How was that? I mean, cause Tom Petty at that point, he's certainly, he's up and coming. He hasn't really exploded yet. I think American girl was probably out, but it's before damn the torpedoes. Right. Yeah. They were, they were like amazing. Um, it's an interesting. It's an interesting mix. Thinking of you guys opening for them, what were the they, crowds like? Was it was it a good experience for all of you? Totally, yeah. They asked for us to to uh, to go on tour with them, and I remember the first night that um, that we were the first show we were doing, we were doing a sound check, and I remember all of those guys coming out on stage and shaking hands and saying, "We love you guys. You know, we love the music." We, we dig the band, all this stuff. And I, I was sort of blown away because usually the headliner doesn't do that. Wow. You know, yeah. And yeah, and then we just like, you know, had parties. Tom always actually had parties at the hotel every night. <laughs> <laughs> Which he eventually banned me and Frankie LaRocca from his parties because we would come in and like take like the, the best booze and like whatever women that we thought was attractive and leave the party. <laughs> So he's well, you guys, I, it had to be an incredible experience to hit the road on that level because I'm not sure what size, what size venues are you playing at that point? Probably big theaters, three thousand. Yeah, yeah we played. Like, I mean, I could think of like Winterland and uh-huh. um, Santa yeah. Monica Civic. I think there were totally, yeah, Santa Monica Civic. And so we, you're playing these iconic venues all over the country. Out of nowhere. I mean, the Staten Island band just comes out and you guys are on the road. Are you traveling? Is it a bike? How are you moving around? Is it a bus? Is it planes? Like, What was the movement? Like okay, so in the beginning, um, yeah, we were flying in the beginning and then they hooked us up with like a tour bus. And it was funny, like, yeah, because it was the first time we had ever done anything like that. And um, I remember Johnny Rayo and, and I, the other guitar player, we, um, for that first tour, we like... Uh, we teamed up in a room, like the both of us were in the same room together. And we literally brought our pajamas on tour with us. 
And I remember we had like this roadie um, who was like, um, he, he had worked with everyone. I think he even worked with Led Zeppelin. And he used to like come to our room, like, you know, in the middle of the night and knock on the door. And when we would open the door, he would just stand, he would laugh just because we were standing there in our pajamas. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that's how innocent we were at that point. Man. Through so, you know, as you're as you're coming up in the band starting, uh, Sylvain is playing with you occasionally. Uh, Johnny yeah. Thunders comes out a couple of times. It's the, sort of the echoes of David's past still play a part in the band, right? Yeah, then then still like you know joined the band like for for a while. He came out, he was on the road with us always. I think that um, Steve Paul, you know David's manager, felt like um, he liked the. Um, the vibe between Syl and David on stage, like, you know, the, the, the way they work together, like mm-hmm. Syl is a good foil for David's um, craziness. Basically. Sure. Yeah. And what about thunders? I know at one of the bottom line shows he came out, was he in the mix much when you guys would play locally? I think a couple of times he came out. Yeah, totally. I mean, I, I was friends with all those guys. I actually hooked the, uh, the heartbreakers up, uh, with a friend of mine who had his own recording studio where they went in and recorded their first record before they actually recorded it. <laughs> you mean before LM- LMF? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Man, so so you're on the road, and then, of course, after the Petty Tour, you guys um, do your own road work, and you get your own tours, and your own, you're headlining, you know, good-sized clubs. And I remember seeing you, I mean, again, in the, in the tri-state area, it was not hard to see the David Johansson group, which was great. I can remember seeing you, as I mentioned, up in Westchester. But then I remember going to the Palladium, right. the great old building on 14th Street, and seeing you open. There was a Rundgren show that had Patti Smith and Meatloaf, and you guys were on that bill as well. Yeah, I think Rockpile also was on Right, yeah. right. Maybe so there were lots of different you know, venues you were playing, and it had to be fun out there. I mean... Um, this is obviously before the second album, but the response to the first album was great critically. And, yeah. uh, and you spent, I think better part of a year pretty much on the road, uh, working that out. Right. We, we like, it wasn't like, like people I know that are in bands now when they tour, they they're away for a few weeks. We were away for the whole year. <laughs> like we didn't even come back for holidays. We were out there. Wow. Yeah. And you're going to Europe eventually. Yeah, we toured Europe too, and uh, and then back here, back and forth, and back and forth, basically. Yeah. So the band, you know, after the first record, uh, you do a record called In Style that um, I think didn't Mick Ronson produce that. Mick produced that, yes. And Ian Hunter played on it. So what's happening at that point now? I mean, again, you guys have put in. Obviously, you've been very responsible. Uh, I think in large part for helping reestablish Johansson. Now it's time for the second record. What, what's it like at that point? Um, yeah. Is the band still hanging tight together? There's going to be some splintering soon, right? Yeah. Some guys we, are going to move on. Yeah. But my brother Buzz and Johnny actually split and, um, and started a band with Cell. And, you know, then they, I think that was the Criminals record. Yeah, exactly. So we got an, a new guitar player and a new bass player, Freddie G and Charlie Pip, who were, they were great. Like, um, Freddie was a ridiculous guitar player. I mean, Eddie Van Halen used to come to see us at the Whiskey all the time, just checking the guitar playing out. <laughs> wow. Yeah. 
What was the second record like for you, Tom? Did you feel like you were able to contribute the same way you were on the first album? Was the was it Amazing. similar? Was it very different? Well, we well, yeah. First of all, working with Mick. I mean, like when I was a kid, like I was into like superheroes, like Superman and Batman and stuff like that. And I I always felt like Mick Ronson fit into that category too, you know. And I remember going to see like. Uh, the Spiders from Mars with Bowie, like the first show they did in New York at Radio City and being, oh, wow. you know, and then like a number of years, which not that many years after that, like you're working with the guy. Crazy. It was mind blowing. And what we did, um, they rented us, um, Dan, it was Dan Hartman's studio in Connecticut, um, schoolhouse studios mm-hmm. for like a number of months. And we all lived there, including Mick, which. Wow. Was- yeah, great bonding uh, situation, and and the recording studio was right there. Yeah, and God, like working with Mick was incredible. Yeah, and it's a great, look. That's a wonderful record as well. It comes out, you get back on the road, and and it all starts over again, right? And you're playing, you know, big shows and little shows and everything in between, and you're back on the road probably almost as much as you were with the first album, right? Yeah, then we went on after that. At that point, I, I believe it's at that point where we toured with The Clash. Right, which does that get us to the show at Shea Stadium? Um, no, actually, Shea Stadium was... That's after, later. Yeah, that's later. That's later. So where did you... The Clash was over in Europe, though, right? Or was it here? Yeah, well, um, no, The Clash, we did, we did a, lot of, um, a lot of shows in the U.S. with The Clash. Mm-hmm. How was that? It was great. I mean, Mick Jones and I like always got along really well, and Joe Strummer like the best guy ever, you know. Mm-hmm. And it was fun playing with them. They were a hard band to play with, um, but yeah, I remember one night in Detroit. I think we might have blown them off the stage because <laughs> <laughs> I had a lot of people tell me that, and I felt that too. But like, uh, they were fun to play with, and they're great guys you know they used to while we were playing they were always like on the side of the stage like you know checking the show out well it's interesting because they must have been dolls fans right i mean they went back a little bit and uh i'm sure appreciated david's legacy but now he's put this band together that again you guys as a band always got a ton of notice uh for for being so great you know in your own right so i'm sure they they loved the history of johansson but also loved the newness of the band Totally. Like anytime we played in England, like all of those guys were at the show and they were a lot of times got up and on stage and played with us. Wow. So you go through that, that touring cycle. And um, I remember seeing a bunch of shows after InStyle had come out and you obviously now you've got more material to play so you can expand the show a little bit too, right? You've got twice as much stuff you can pull from. Yeah. Were there songs in particular, Tom, that you liked I remember, I think it was Not That Much was one that really allowed you to kind of shine in, in a big way. Were there other ones, if I'm right about that one, but were, were there other ones that you remember fondly that were kind of like your moments on stage? Um, maybe um, Not That Much also. Mm-hmm. Uh, or did, is that what you just said? Yeah, I'd say, yeah not, that's the one I remember where Johansson would kind of throw it to you. And that was your kind of your song. God, I can't remember the name of the other one, but um, Cool Metro was always fun. Um, there was a song on the second record, Justine. Yeah. Where, like, I mean, for me, 
was or amazing memories around um where i um i played like the main like riff of the song on a rickenbacker like uh tried to get like a very 60s old uh-huh. on it and i did the solo actually on that guitar as well and i remember the day that we recorded it was just mick and i alone in the studio like i was in the room and he was at the board and um he's like okay let's record the solo and i went in there and recorded it and i came back into the uh, sound room and said to him should we do another take and he was like no that made me cry wow <laughs> man yeah. and look it's a it's a great solo and it's i think that's that's personally my favorite song on the album i think it uh yeah. It was, was so soulful and just one of those, I, you know, Johansson, as much of a rocker as he is, to me, those mid-tempos are really where you get inside his head and his voice, and you're playing on that. It's just stellar. So that's what a story that you brought Ronson to tears in there. Amazing. I, I remember thinking, well, if you don't do anything else, at least you got that, you know. <laughs> so what and, happens for you, Thomas? Your brother has moved on now. There's a point now where you're going to leave the band as well and kind of get to the next phase of your career. Yeah. So actually what happened at that point, and um, it sounds crazy at the moment, but like um, we wanted to sort of like um, as the band wanted to start recording stuff of our own mm-hmm. because we were like, um, I don't know, just feeling like a, a slightly different type of music because like most of the stuff we were writing when it would be writing with David would have to be sort of like leaning into a doll sort of thing, you know? Right. Right. And we were like getting into like different types of music and uh, starting to write on our own and uh, rehearsing songs of our own at sound checks and stuff. And I I remember a meeting with uh, David's manager and like, he was saying to us something like, what's going on? You guys have this other band or, and um, he was like, you know, David really needs you guys to be with him all the time right now. So you will have to make a decision whether you want to do the David thing or do your band. And I don't know, we thought about it and we were like, we want to try to do our band. So that was the decision we made at the time. Thinking back on it now, it was probably a, a stupid idea because um, things were going really well. We should have stuck with it for, you know, a bit longer and you know, to see what would come of it. But um, that's the way we were feeling at the moment. We had people, management and record companies who were willing to, you know, work with us already. So, yeah. And we started, so we went off and started working on that. And um, and who would that have been exactly? Yourself and yeah, Frankie? Yeah, so me and um, Frankie LaRocca, drums, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, Freddie G, guitar, and Charlie Pip on bass, and uh, Ronnie Guy, who was a keyboard player with David. Right. It was basically the whole band that we had with David at that point, except for David. And uh, yeah, we started rehearsing. We were going to record our first record. Things got really screwed up, um, where um, I actually introduced Freddie to this girl from California who he fell in love with, and he wound up leaving New York and moving to California to be with her and uh, sort of messed up the band at that point. Mm -hmm. And around the same time, um, 
Johnny Rayo was started working with this uh, girl named Helen Schneider. Right, right. Who, um, who had like she already had like a platinum record in Germany, and he was telling me that he asked me if I would do a tour with him. You know, telling me that they needed someone else. So I was willing to check it out, and I remember thinking it was going to be one tour, but then it turned into like I don't know maybe four or five years where we recorded like you know a couple of records with her over there and mm -hmm. were in europe like you know most of the time playing yeah germany and uh i know we played everywhere with her mm -hmm. yeah i remember when you were with her how did johansson take the news when you guys left um probably not great yeah you know, I mean, we're still friends and stuff, and I've seen him after that. But like at the time, maybe he was like sort of, uh, you know, not happy with that decision. Yeah. Um, you know, and like I said, thinking back on it now, we should have just sat with, you know, the whole thing and just stayed there. But we were, I don't know. That's where we're coming. We were Look, young. Yeah. And people are telling, you know, whispering things to you, I'm sure. And, you know, suggesting that it could be different. And all of our friends were like, um, like friends with like guys in the cars and people like that. And they all had like platinum records. <laughs> like, I want one too, you know? Yeah. And uh, so. We well, I guess at a certain point you tour the world and you're, you're on those stages and you're getting response. So why shouldn't you think that, you know, you're obviously a big part of the show, Thomas, we have another break to take. Now we're going to come back and then pick up your post Helen Schneider uh, era. After that, I'm Chris Eppie. My guest is guitar player, Thomas Trask. This is the moment and we'll be right back. Find out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at Voice America TRN. Chris Epting will be releasing the third edition of his best-selling baseball travel Bible, Roadside Baseball, in June 2019. Academy Award-nominated director Ken Burns said about Roadside Baseball, What a wonderful book. All the stations of the cross of our national pastime are here, big and small, telling and frivolous. I can imagine this book in the glove compartment of every true fan's car. A handy reference to this beloved game, no matter where in the country you are. The new edition features hundreds of new places to discover, more rare photos, stories, and trivia. It's everything you need to plan the baseball road trip of your dreams. Roadside Baseball, coming this June. Available for pre-order right now on Amazon.com. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective, plus topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite hosts. It's just a click away at blog.voiceamerica.com. That's blog.voiceamerica.com. The Voice America Press Blog. All access all the time become our friend on facebook post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline visit facebook.com forward slash voice america you are listening to the moment with chris epting if you have a question or a comment about our show please send an email to chris at chris that's chris at chris now, back to The Moment. Thank you for 
joining me again. My guest today is Thomas Trask. We've covered a lot of uh, a lot of his musical career. Not enough. This time is just flying by. But we began with the David Johansson group, and now uh, Thomas has recounted how he left David, and uh, you're playing. Who's who's in um, Helen Schneider's band with you at that point? Johnny Rayo, the other guitar player. Yeah. So um, Tommy Price, uh, who had been with who was going to be with the Blackhearts sooner or later. Tommy played with everybody. Again, another great kind of Staten Island legend that came out with all of you. Yeah, it's crazy how, like, we all grew up together, and, like, we knew these guys were good, but we didn't know how good they were until, you know, later on. And and you're like, holy shit, like, these guys are, like, yeah. the best drummers in the business. Right, right. So you're with Helen Schneider and then that you together for a few years and you're touring a lot. Well, what's the next phase of your uh, career as a guitar player after that? Yeah. Then I guess that would be maybe where I like uh, moved to working. Actually, Tommy called me and uh, Joan was in, they were in Germany and Joan Jett. Yeah. Joan Jett. And uh, um, the guitar player like split without giving them notice. And he asked if I would, <laughs> could fill in or something so yeah so i did some touring with them and you had that look where you could i mean it wasn't just the playing but you had the look where you could step into a band like that and be totally comfortable and at home right yeah and we all knew each other i mean i had met joan like back when maybe like the first show we did with david at the the whiskey or something right Right. And then you wind up playing a little interesting side note for you is playing with the bangles. Yeah. Yeah. On their cover of Hazy Shade of Winter. How did that happen? Yeah. Yeah. Rick Rubin produced that. And uh, my friend Pam was like their personal manager. And and, um, she had called me up and said, you know, they're having some trouble with this guitar part. You think you could do it? I was like, I'll be right there. (laughs) (laughs) And just... Went down and, um, you know, nailed that thing. And Where did you play it? Where was that? That was, I can't remember the name of the studio. It was in L.A. where we recorded. At the, actually, at that period of time, I was living, and I moved to L.A. for a couple of years. Oh. Yeah. And um, went in and, you know, Rick was the producer. But it's like funny, uh, he didn't really hang out that much in the studio and didn't do that much. He, would, he just left me with the engineer and I think Susanna Hopps was there and um, and would drop in every like couple of hours eating pizza. But um, that's about all that he did that I knew of. Or he would he would be like um, he was telling me like stuff like um, like at the end of that song, there was a part where you had to keep playing the riff over and over and over again. And usually like the way a guitar player would do that, you'll play it. And then if you mess up, then just like play it again and just cut it into the rest of it where right. he wanted this vibe that, no, I want to do it the way it would have been done in the good old days. Like you have to keep playing it through and, you know, without any cuts in it. And uh, so that was a little challenging, but it was fun. But um, yeah, it becomes a big hit. I mean, a big song for them, for the Bangles, obviously. It was like uh, it was like a number one hit on the record. And Rick's whole thing was he was like, if we use your guitar part, we'll pay you. But if we don't, we won't. I'm like, sure, fine. So um, obviously they had used my guitar part, but I hadn't received any money for the any payment for the session. 
So I remember I called, uh, I got in touch with the um, musicians union in California and said, Hey, you know, there's a song on the radio. It's like a big hit that I played <laughs> and I haven't been paid for. And um, I had a check like within a few days afterwards. Oh, that's good. That's good. And then from there, you, you move back to New York eventually, right? And what's, what, where does it go from there, Tom, for you? Yeah, um, then I started playing with, with uh, a few bands in the city. I formed a band called Torn and Frayed for a while mm-hmm. and played around town. And um, then I just like um, started teaching and I started doing it not intentionally. Uh, it was sort of by accident where I got a, a phone call from someone and asked me if I would teach uh, them and I started doing that and built up like you know a pretty good clientele for a few years and sort of got into doing that I was you know getting to the point where I was getting older and like not really digging that whole lifestyle of being on the road all the mm-hmm. time you know and you do it today if people wanted to get a hold of you as a teacher they can do that right yeah um probably through maybe the best way would be through my email address which is uh, ttrascal, R-A-S-C-A-L, at gmail.com. Cool. I mean, it's a, I think it's, it's great watching players like you. I think a lot of you kind of follow this path where, again, the road becomes too tough, and you can share your skill set now with, uh, with the next up-and-coming players. Yeah, I really dig doing it. And I always felt like, you know, I will get back into playing, and I'm starting to – I've been feeling like that for the last year. I want to start doing – uh, my own stuff again or doing a band. And the thing is um, it would, you know, I wouldn't do it unless it was like extremely meaningful musically. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think I'm at that point. Well, you know, we talked at the beginning of the show, I opened up talking about a lot of the losses and things you, you, you had a big loss yourself, not too long ago, your brother buzz, right, Tommy? Yeah. He passed away. He had uh liver cancer and he didn't know it. And, uh, by the time he'd found out, it seemed like it was too late. Wow. Yeah, it's it's so sad when you read these things and hear about these things. Because as as listeners and as fans, we flash back, you know, and we had that kind of weird bond with bands like yours, you know. And, uh, you know, it's just, uh, I, I mean, again, deep condolences for your loss. That's that's a big yeah. one, too. You know, with, with yeah. Frankie LaRock is another one no longer here. And Sylvain recently. When you look back on those days today, I mean... You know, David has sort of kept going on. He obviously developed his Buster Poindexter persona for a number of years and then got back with the dolls when Arthur was still alive with Sylvain and all that. And now the dolls are are up, I think, for the first time as Rock and Roll Hall of Fame nominees. Yeah, that's awesome. Really amazing. Yeah, it's it's amazing to me they haven't been up before. Not that I'm one that takes the hall that seriously or or you know, gives it too much weight. But if you're going to have one and you might as well put the New York dolls in there, I can't understand why that would have taken so long, but hopefully, um, you know, there, there are moments there and it's a good thing for David and stuff, but you're still in touch with him. Um, I haven't spoken to David in a while. Um, The last time I saw him was when um, the version of the dolls played in town with Steve Conti. Right. And I went to the show and spoke to him a bit there, but um, that's about it. Yeah. When you you mentioned off mic uh, before we started uh, the show today, Tom, that Johnny Rayo, your former guitar associate partner in crime in the David Johansson Group, 
reached out to you and, and made you aware of something recently regarding some songs that uh, that you had worked on way back when that he found copies of, right? Yeah, apparently like when we were recording the first record. The first Johansson record. Yeah, the first Johansson record. There was like around five songs or something that didn't make it onto the record that we had written with David. And uh, I believe that was because they were maybe fit into a genre that might have been a little heavier than what, you know, than the doll sort of thing. Right. And uh, so maybe that's why they didn't make it onto there. But I've heard them recently and I was sort of blown away. They're really amazing. I'm not sure what will ever come of that. Or So it's the full band with, with David doing lead vocals. Totally. Yeah. And they're fully like they're produced and ready to go. Yeah, amazing. Yeah, those I, have I, to I, see the light of day. <laughs> I, I think mean, I totally forgot about the songs until I heard them. I was like, "Oh my god, yeah." Do you live in Staten Island today, Tom? No, I'm living in Brooklyn. Okay. Do you ever go back home? Like, what's it like when you walk those streets today and think about those days in the mid '70s when all this stuff was just starting to come together? Are there a lot of memories back there for you? Yeah, my, my mom still lives there. I, I go to Staten Island to visit her every so often. Uh, yeah, it, it seems so different now. Like, uh, it seems like it's changed a lot, you know? And everyone who we knew that did live there, most of them, like 90% of the people are not living there anymore. So. Yeah. When you think back to the days with the Johansson group, are there certain shows that stand out? You mentioned the Tom Petty tour. Um, are there some other specific shows that that just resonate with you today? Well, like the, the bottom line shows were like so much fun, you know. I mean, I'm just thinking back, like every night in the dressing room would be like Lou Reed and Andy Warhol, um, <laughs> and they like loved our band. Like they would. I remember Lou Reed like uh, standing up in the audience, like uh, holding a chair over his head. <laughs> or something like giving us like some kind of standing ovation and he uh yeah really dug the band when you guys played i think it was a week or so at the bottom line that was that summer those shows were the biggest shows in town i mean those were i i wrote a book with john oates um and he oh, wow. told me how we were talking about those days once and he goes you know he goes we used to go downtown a lot and check a lot of music he goes but one night daryl and i um, went to go see the Johansson group at the bottom line during that week. He goes, and it was like one of the greatest bands we'd ever seen in our life. I mean, to your point cool. about who was there those nights, he never knew who was going to come watch that show. Oh, totally. Yeah. It was like really crazy. It's funny that you mentioned him because I recently saw a video that he, uh, John Oates did, and I never realized that he played guitar as amazing as he does. You know, it was- people, it's funny you say that. I don't think a lot of people do. I mean, John is, a very accomplished, you know, folk blues Americana. He's a picker, you know what I mean? And, and was, an amazing one. He was doing like a, um, a Mississippi John Hurt song. Yeah, that's his guy. That's one of his, one of his guys. Um, Doc like, Watson. Yeah, Mississippi John I Hurt. I was like blown away. It was amazing. I think, yeah, if you ever get a chance, John's solo stuff, that's where you really see his wow. heart and soul as a guitar player. And uh, and even if you go to a Hall & Oates show, you can still see it. John will take leads on certain things and you get it. It may There may not be as much room there to stretch as he does on his solo stuff. Right. But, uh, but yeah, he's a wonderful player. But uh, 
but you know, they were part of that scene too. I mean, they played Max's and open for Springsteen and all that, but yeah, there's th- those days back in 78, everybody yeah. had to go, the David Johansson group, everybody had to go see that band. Yeah. And, um, you know, again, I, I was just curious if there were other shows that uh, that you remember specifically, because again, there were so many, and you played. You know, you opened for a lot of people. A lot of people opened for you. It was those days where the, the bills could be really fun at certain shows? Yeah, I think I'm, I'm remembering like uh, a show, and I I'm not sure it was at the Stone Pony or um, the Fast Lane in Asbury Park, where Spring Scene got up and played with us. Really. Yeah, that was pretty amazing, singing out of the same mic. And he used my backup guitar. I remember thinking, like, um, he wouldn't know the chords of the songs, but, like, he knew all those songs. (laughs) (laughs) Amazing. Well, Thomas, I want to thank you, man. It's, um, again, you're such an important part of that era. And for those of us that that experienced it on the other side of the stage, you uh, you brought us tons of joy and and really just countless memories, you know. And and again, I really think that when when Johansson looks back at his career, I think your band is really what helped him reestablish himself as a as a relevant act. He was coming out of the the fog at that point, and had you guys not stalked him the way you did and rehearsed in your mom's garage the way you did, I think the world would have been a lot different musically. You know, it brought it resulted in some really incredible music. Thank you so much for, you know, all of your compliments. I, I really appreciate it. And and thanks for asking me to be on the show. This was so much fun. Well, listen, the only thing is you've got to stick to your plan now and get back out. Put the band together that you want. You know, get some of these guys together. Because we're all still here waiting. You know what I mean? We would support that. I think I speak for a lot of people. We're waiting. That's the music we want, you know. So. Yeah. Uh, so think about that as you can, and then we'll get back on the show and talk about what you're up to uh, with the new band, okay? If we can make very that cool. deal right now. That sounds very cool. All right, man. Thomas, thank you so much. My guest today, very special guest, Thomas Trask, terrific guitar player, incredible storyteller, obviously. And I'm Chris Epting. This has been The Moment. Thank you for joining me, and I will be back next week. Thank you for taking a moment out of your busy week to join us for The Moment. Be sure to join Chris Epting for another edition every Wednesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time and 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll see you here next week.